2: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to tell you uh, each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And uh, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, it's the company that I work for, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? With regard to Chen's newsletter, you do need to put your name on a waiting list as uh, Chen accepts new subscribers only during the first two weeks of each calendar quarter. So uh, if you put your name on a waiting list, it's a first-come, 1st first serve basis. Uh, you will be eligible uh, to become a subscriber during the first two weeks of 2016. Uh, so again, go to miningstocks.com to put your name on Chan's waiting list, but also you can go there to subscribe to my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and I would like to invite you to keep those questions and comments coming along to Taylor at gmail.com, questions the number four, taylor at gmail.com, and I would like to invite you also to follow me on Twitter. My handle is JTaylorMedia. We do want to thank uh, our sponsor for today's show is Dynacor Gold Mines. We want to thank them uh, for making this show economically viable. Uh, Dynacore has long been one of my favorite companies in my newsletter. I've uh, recommended it a number of years ago when it was around 35 Mm -hmm. cents or so. I was uh, in Montreal at that point uh, in time and somewhat by accident I ran into Dynacore. And it's it's a very unique company in that it's a gold mining company that has been making money. Year over year, even during these difficult times, and so it has been able to fund its growth uh, organically without having to go out and raise capital. It has a mere 37.3 million shares outstanding. Dollar 20 in U.S. money today gives it a very low market cap of under 50 million dollars. Uh, it has earned five cents through the first nine months of this year. Earnings are down somewhat this year, uh, given the fact that the volume of ore that they purchase, because it is an ore purchase model is down somewhat from where uh, it was the previous year, it seems as though the small miners are just simply holding off, not selling their gold ore to Dynacor as rapidly as they were before, given the lower gold prices. Uh, But in any event, the company is able to continue to make uh, money and make strong cash flows, even in this very difficult market. Uh, No debt, and it's uh, in great shape. Uh, its balance sheet is in great shape, but the real big story here for Dynacor, and we will have Jean Martineau coming on to talk about this company in the next several weeks, the real big news here uh, is that they have discovered what looks like a very massive porphyry system, a copper-gold porphyry system It measures 1.7 kilometers long by 750 uh, uh, meters wide, uh, so, so, and with some very high-grade gold and copper Uh, reported on surface. Now this is right in the middle uh, in the area where there is uh, a number of other very large world class uh, copper gold porphyry systems and uh, uh, projects I should say with well known mining companies uh, some of which have approached uh, approached uh, Dynacor uh, wanting to join venture. Well, Gene Martineau has steadfastly refused to do that, taking instead the cash flow from operations, from its ore purchasing operation, uh, and uh, using that to expand his growth, not only to explore the potential for a massive world-class deposit, but also it has an underground mine where it will soon be mining gold uh, of its own rather than purchasing gold from other companies. And that provides a much bigger uh, profit margin than the ore purchasing uh, program, good as that uh, poor program has been. I believe that uh, the future for Dynacor is extremely bright. And again, one of my favorite stocks, one that I've been uh, writing about in my newsletter for quite a few years. Uh, so I think you might want to pay some attention to Dynacor, uh, symbol DNG. Uh, in Canada. It also trades in the U.S. over-the-counter. I would like to also mention that uh, today posted at Jay Taylor Media uh, is an interview that I did uh, with uh, Bob Thast. He's the CEO of a company called New Carolyn Gold Mines. Well, New Caroline Gold Mines is a story that uh, sort of really goes back to the start when I started writing my newsletter back in 1981. Uh, Caroline Gold. Uh, Caroline Mines, it was called, in the in 1981 sold at a hefty $60 price. I think they had one profitable quarter in their history. But it was, you know, during the mania when gold was just everybody wanted gold in the in those days. Right after gold went from thirty-five to eight hundred and fifty dollars, uh, and it was quite a story. But it was never really systematically explored. The uh, never, I think, they were in a hurry to put the mine into production. I think it was as much as anything, perhaps a paper play back in those days. Uh, make money quick, mine people, maybe more than mining gold. And so Carolyn Mines was a really hot stock, but it just uh, underlying. Uh, fundamentals of the company just wasn 't there, and so when the gold price went down, the company went out of uh, went out of business. Uh, but it has been recognized and i 've recognized it for some time as uh, having tremendous potential exploration potential. The, and uh, it should be noted that part of the reason for the failure back then was recovery of gold was less than 50 percent so that combined with lower prices uh, hurried uh, effort to get it into production while the gold price was still hot i think is the reason but bob fast uh, explains this company's prospects at J taylor media so uh, if you're interested in scooping up companies, gold mining companies, when nobody else wants them. I know most of you are probably saying, oh yeah, I've heard this story before. Well, uh, New Caroline Gold Mines is available at five cents a share or thereabouts right now. Uh, It's one that uh, I think has tremendous potential and it's also a name that I've added to my newsletter. Also, I would like to just make a note that Al Corlin and I will be working together now more closely um, and uh, in an affiliation. Uh, Corey Fleck uh, is Al's partner, so the three of us will be doing more things together. Uh, But we're going to start an affiliation now, and in fact, uh, I will be posting some of Al Corlin's material at J. Taylor Media on the podcast page, uh, where you can uh, also listen to New Carolyn Gold Mines, which I just mentioned. But on the podcast page, we'll be Uh, probably putting up uh, some of Al's weekend reports as well as perhaps one in the middle uh, of the week. And uh, he has a number of very interesting people, and he has a a different format than I have. It's sort of a discussion format among a a number of different analysts. And um, so uh, that is something that uh, I think you should look forward to. So Al and I will be uh, doing more things together, and he will also be posting some of my things at thekereport.com as well. Um, some of the things that you can find at J. Taylor Media, uh, this show, and some other materials uh, that are at J. Taylor Media. Well, I've just, uh, I have just um, I have titled today's show, The Geopolitical Future of the Petrodollar and Gold. And my guests today are, are William Engdahl, who's been with me a couple of times, and Michael Oliver, who's with me, well, almost every week. Uh, Michael will, of course, give us an update on his latest views uh, based on his structural momentum models that he uses so effectively uh, to keep us abreast of where the various markets are going. But uh, William Engdahl is a historian, economist, uh, prolific writer, uh, went to Princeton, has his degree from Princeton and some graduate degrees from uh, Stockholm uh, and Sweden. Uh, But we're going to talk about this whole issue of geopolitical future of the petrodollar and gold, because I think this is really coming into the foray, even though it's not talked about much at all in the American press, to be sure. Uh, We don't hear much about that that subject at all, because uh, the mainstream would really rather have you believe that gold is unnecessary, there's no need for it, uh, and so the petrodollar is just the way things are. Nixon... Uh, set up the petrodollar in 1970. Uh, well, right after he took us off the real off of gold, when he took gold off, uh, detached gold from the dollar, uh, he sent Kissinger to Saudi Arabia, where he uh, arranged for oil to be purchased in dollars, and uh, and the oil cartel then did the same thing. So the dollar then had a bid under it, and so there was a reason to own the dollar because by it was forced uh, or it was arranged we should say at that stage for countries t- who were producing oil to demand payment uh, in dollars so that has been the backbone of the petrodollar system uh and it has uh, to a great extent allowed the united states to finance endless numbers of wars uh, endless amounts of, uh, of of financing for its military industrial complex it has then used that power to expand globally uh, and to intimidate and take over countries, change regimes, put in people. Sometimes elected people are taken out of order because they don't cooperate with the United States. Uh, and we have been doing that uh, over and over again. Well, of course, that is not sitting well with China and Russia and some of the other powers, but especially those two big guys uh, are countries that uh, may uh, are, are really showing some resistance now. Uh, and so we want to talk to William Angdell and get his... Uh, get his Views on what is really going on with with regard to the petrodollar and gold, uh, and uh, you know some other topics that we want to talk to him about as well concerning. Uh, the financial status of those countries as, as opposed to the West. Uh, certainly we want to talk to him about Syria and what that's doing uh, to the refugee status and the problems that are cropping up now around the world as a result of, uh, of the tragic um, homeless people that are being created because of the bombs that both the United States and, and Russia and other countries uh, are, uh, are exploding and, and uh, in these countries and really creating havoc. Well, uh, we do have to take our first commercial break, so we're gonna do that now, uh, but uh, don't go away because when we come back, Michael Oliver will be with us to uh, to give us his views uh, from his structural momentum um, viewpoint. What is happening uh, to the stock market, to gold, uh, and to some other markets. So don't go away, we'll be right back with Michael Oliver.
0: Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at dynacorgold.com or follow us on Twitter at dynacoregold. Gold.
3: 200 million dollars
1: follow us on twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. trn get the lowdown on guests new shows and your favorites that's VoiceAmericaTRN. america trn you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me Michael Oliver. Once again, Michael uh, joins me uh, almost every week when there's time to, to squeeze him in here because I really like his work. I like uh, the, uh, his structural momentum models that he puts together. And I would suggest uh, those of you who may not be familiar with his work, go to OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com, to learn more about uh, what Michael does. Thank you, Michael, for joining me again. You know, we were just talking off mic before, uh, before coming back here. Uh, y- normally, we talked to you about what are your technical models telling you about the various, uh, various markets, and we do want to ask you about that. But you had some, uh, some interesting insights, I think, into what uh, is transpiring now politically in Europe. Talk to our listeners a-, a little bit about what you were telling me before we went back on, on mic here.
4: And when we say the dollar, most people are talking about the dollar index, which is 57% the euro, okay? So it's really an inverse of the euro, mm-hmm. uh, not the specific dollar, yen, dollar, Canadian, et cetera. But the dollar index, which is what you, most people focus on, has been heavily influenced by the weakness in the euro, therefore strength the dollar. And the weakness in the euro has been brought upon by Merkel policies, uh, Draghi policies, uh, basically uniform, a uniform view of what Europe should do uh, uh, vis-à-vis debt, nations and so forth. And so a lot of the political trends that are in force in Europe are really Mother Merkel's. She's in charge. Mm-hmm. But she's really not been totally in charge politically. A lot of her own coalition within Germany is a little bit rattled, has been, and she's had to patch it up from time to time. So it's not like she's a monolith. Mm-hmm. But this recent event uh, has given rise, further rise, I should say, to a lot of opposition parties throughout the core of Europe that have already been rising to the point of where they're getting 10 and 20 percent of the vote. Not enough to command uh, positions of of power, but enough to get attention. And now with this recent event, the immigration issue is comes to the forefront, and therefore these parties benefit, like Le Pen's party in, in France, the National Party. There's other ones in each country. Uh, the question that you have to ask yourself is, will this political uh, will this event cause a political shift in Europe that is antagonistic to? Because a lot of these parties don't just uh, disagree on the immigration point, they disagree with these other core policies. Can yeah, this such, event such help the... these parties into power? Yeah. Or at least in sufficient power where they can uh, dismantle the Merkel model? Now, it, it's, a, it's a speculative question, but clearly there's an impetus here. And there was already an impetus before this event. This just hyper- uh, ventilated it, uh, so I think it's something you have to think about as a as a variable in the markets going forward.
2: Yeah, for sure. Well, the eurozone uh, itself and the uh, uh, in, you know redu- redu- reduced uh, living standards for especially the, the uh, I guess the countries along the periphery, but also uh, you know France things aren't hadn't been going all that well. I think economically, Germany a little stronger, uh, but it's, as you say, it's not just the immigration issue. Well, let me ask you, Michael, why do you think that the market's reaction to the tragedies in Paris were rather muted on Monday? Why do you think because that I is? I think
4: they always are.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
4: Pardon me. Uh, it, it, first off, that has nothing to do with market stock prices, economic no. trends. It is a terror event, and it, you know, it is what it is. But mm-hmm. if you'll go back and look throughout history, pretty much even after 9-11, once they opened the market and you gave it about an hour to collapse, if you mm-hmm. bought, you made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. The subway bombing in London, mm-hmm. if you bought that, you made money. Mm-hmm. Uh, these and, and quite often these things are occurring, coincidentally, or perhaps not, at the end of near-term sell-offs. So that by the time the event occurs, you're not at a high, but you're at a low. And mm-hmm. so all the oversold crowd comes roaring in to buy a bargain, the contrarian crowd. And I think that's mm-hmm. all this was. Mm-hmm. I don't think it really was a, a fundamental statement at all. The market was near-term oversold. Uh, this event happened. Uh, after all, you just dropped the S&P uh, roughly 100 points mm-hmm. you know, as of, uh, you know, uh, in the dark on Sunday trading the electronic futures from where it had been uh, several weeks before. Yeah. So it, it was near-term oversold. And I think that's all it really was. I think it was, it was fundamentally irrelevant that that okay. occurred. It, it,
2: all right. Well, I, sus- so-
4: I suspect that low also, by the way, that we made on the S&P cash on the Monday's opening at 2020 which happens to coincide precisely with a high that occurred back in September, so mm. it's a price chart amateur thing, uh, mm-hmm. will not ultimately hold as the low of the sell-off.
2: Okay. You think we're, we're going lower. Okay, so, Yeah, I, I know. think so. Now, as
4: far as a further big drop, in other words, mm-hmm. getting the real bear market underway, that yeah. may be held off until next quarter. In other mm-hmm. words, we might, this particular sell-off might not feed into a continued sharp decline. It might just drop you know, uh, below that low and then go into a coil between now and the end of the year. That's, I, I see that as a possibility as well. It doesn't negate the longer-term negatives. It just says instead of achieving them, soon we're going to hold off until next year. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, another uh, uh, what what is what is the possibility here, Michael, of uh, that maybe your bear market scenario might not be right? I had uh, another technical analyst that I pay some attention to. I'd like to just read what he said this morning in the wee hours of his report when he sent his report out. Stocks counterintuitively brushed off the horror in Paris. Well, you're saying that's that's the way it always does, uh, and and rallied sharply Monday, November sixteenth. Monday's rally showed sufficient upside momentum to trigger a new buy signal. In our purchasing power indicator. It's one of the indicators that this gentleman uses. This is occurring at the same time the VIX generated a new stock market buy signal, closing back inside its two standard deviation Bollinger Bands. Respecting these important indicators, we have to recognize that this flies in the face of the top wave mapping. He's an Elliott wave guy. Uh, so we have to consider the possibility the SP and the industrials could be headed for new all time highs. And an alternate large degree wave picture is occurring. If so, the low on November 13th could be the trend turn that the, uh, of that November uh, in November. Uh, I guess you don't see it that way, though. You no, don't think I we're heading for new highs?
4: That it could behave in such a way that that kind of talk could gain some uh, chatter. Uh Uh, Because I think you could see stability between now and the end of the year coiling in the 2000 area, let's say on the S&P, for example, between 2000 and 2100, uh, which is where we've been for the last month or so. Uh, I can see the coiling up, but I do think we have probably have seen our high. Uh, which actually we had predicted in January of this year, 21.30. We we bumped it twice this year, then fell sharply, then came roaring back up to 21.16 point something uh, three four weeks ago and just couldn't make it, and then dropped nearly 100 points. I think the market is broken. It might coil. It mm-hmm. might fool you. Now, remember how it behaved in late 2007. We had a horrible sell-off into the summer low of August 2007, Mm-hmm. Then we had a couple hundred-point rally into October of 2007 when Bernanke came in. made an all-time new high. Then the market between the October high and the end of the year dropped sharply into November, as if it wanted to go back down. A Fed spokesman, I think was a vice chair of the Fed, made a speech that helped it, boosted it back up into December. And we put out a report late in December and said that if the S&P does not close above 1,500 this year... It's in dire straits if it opens if it closes in the low in the, excuse me in the high fourteen hundreds because when mm-hmm. it opens it's going to break some more annual structures. Mm-hmm. Well, that that coiling process where it, it, you fool both sides that's mm-hmm. the way we wrapped up the year of two thousand seven, which was in fact a topping year. Mm-hmm. And so if you looked at the week by week action in the last quarter of the year, you were entirely confused. Mm-hmm. It looked like one of the collapse, explode, collapse, explode, and finally it closed with a whimper. And when it opened the next year, it was just bombs away. Yeah. Um, and I think I think we could be setting up for that. In which case, that gentleman's argument will seem to have some merit
2: uh-huh. if, in
4: fact, we go into a coil here.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that, that could be. Yeah, it could be the thing that delays this decline then until the first quarter yeah. of next year. I guess yeah. in your That's in your exactly thought, well. Well you know one of the things I, I think that i what well, I really appreciate about your charts is that when you show these momentum charts compared to the price charts, uh, in many cases, it looks so different. And gold is one of them that I noticed, one that you put out this week, where the momentum chart looks you know look pretty much stable and sideways and uh, going nowhere. Ah, uh, building a base, perhaps, uh, uh, but seemingly capped with a ceiling over top of it. But it looks quite a bit more constructive than the price chart. But what are you, what are you seeing now with gold? Uh, same,
4: same story, I think. Uh, the process in gold is is, is a bit different. In stock stocks peak mid year. Gold continues to make new lows. But in point of fact, if you'll stand back and look at a gold chart going back to 2011, the real decline ended in 2013. Mm-hmm. We're at 1178. That was the low that year, twice. Uh, we've since blown that low out by a couple percent. Each time we make a new low, we go a couple percent beyond the prior low, stop and turn up, mm-hmm. and then retrace the ground that we just declined. Uh, we just did it again today. We took out the July low, which mm-hmm. has been at 10.72.30. We traded down to 10.63.40. I think we're back above 10.70 again. I still think gold is price-wise, is is an erosional basing action. In other words, it Mm. keeps making a new low, but only nudging, nudgingly. it doesn't really sincerely open up. And the momentum continues to sit there poised like a snake, ready to coil through the structure. The structure (laughs) is massive. It's like almost three years wide. Right. Uh, The last time I saw a structure like this occurred with the Shanghai Stock Index in the summer of 2014. That index at the time was at 2100, and nobody wanted to own Shanghai. It went oh. from twenty one hundred to fifty one hundred in eleven months. When it went well, I, that
2: structure. I, I so. might say, I might say that nobody except Michael Oliver. I, I don't know of anybody else. that was, I mean, there probably was somebody out there, Michael, that thought it was time to buy it, but I don't know. Your that was a, a fantastic call, and uh, and and well, obviously
4: point being, though, what you just said, it's, it's not wisdom on my part at all. It's simply that momentum built a structure that a blind person could, could see on a braille chart. It was, it, it was so clear that there was a bottoming process, even though Shanghai was every several months nip out a new low, rally, nip out a new low, rally, but really the gas was out of it on the downside in price. It was incremental. And then finally, one time it turned up and it wasn't fake. It was for real and it, you know, more than doubled within 11 months. Now, you know, at the top at 4,700, we said, get out. But but the point being that that was the same type of base that gold has now. And inversely, it's the same type of momentum structure that oil had back in the summer last year when it broke down, which is a Mm -hmm. huge flat structure that spans several years. You Mm -hmm. couldn't see it on a price chart, but you could see it on momentum. So Uh when I see these type of structures, it just tells me, wake up, this market is setting up for a big move. The only mm. issue then becomes when. Mm-hmm. So it's a matter of monitoring. It's a monitoring process.
2: Right, exactly. Well, uh, oil, then you, you put out something earlier today, big oil, uh, and you said it's premature to be talking about a bottom. We got about three minutes left here yet. Could you right. comment? I was well? talking
4: about the major oil stocks, and yeah. I, I especially think the major oil stocks have not bottomed. They've had an ice rally just like the market over the last mm-hmm. few months. But I don't think the low they made was anywhere close to the low they're going to make. I think they'll go back down with the market. Uh, when the S&P goes down, the oil stocks will go down. I think at that point you, can, you should probably focus more on what the S&P does rather than what oil does in terms of trying to buy the bottom in oil stocks, which I suspect you'll see next year. But I don't think you've seen it yet. And I, I think people talking about buying the bottom in the oil stocks are way, way premature.
2: But you don't see an awful lot of downside yet. Uh, for for oil in, itself, I guess. Well,
4: in oil itself, I think oil's main function is to act as a Judas goat, take things to the slaughter, and that could uh-huh. be some companies that have debt that's tied to submerged oil prices, which hurts them day by day. It isn't an issue of oil going down. It's an issue of oil staying where it is now. Uh, I do think oil will probably make a new low, below the low we made uh, a couple months ago, which was just below 38. I don't see any precipitous decline in oil. I just see this teasing Uh, torturous process where every rally fails, you make a new low, people get disappointed. But the main function of oil now is to damage certain things. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and it's known. I mean, it is known that certain entities are in trouble because energy prices are depressed and low and they can't pay their debts. And if that doesn't change, then there's going to be a problem and some headlines. I think oil will probably bottom when those headlines occur.
2: Which uh, leads me also with uh, with a minute or so left here. Your, uh, uh, let's say, high-yield debt uh, models, they're still uh, looking pretty shaky now. I mean, I guess we should be uh, looking to short there, possibly? Yeah, well, I,
4: well actually, uh, a couple quarters ago, we suggested shorting. The decline has not been precipitous yet. It's just been uh, layered and persistent. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, at the same time, the TLT, which is the ETF of U.S. Treasuries, has gone up. So yes. It's an equal and opposite situation that the safe stuff goes up. The formerly good stuff, the high yielding stuff that the Fed wanted us to buy, which did quite well from 2011 through about 2014, uh, now suddenly is a huge liability, technically speaking and fundamentally. Um, and so, yes, that, that continues to get worse. And uh, I'd also start watching uh, Muni bonds, MUB is the ETF
2: okay. for them. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, we'll. All right, well we'll be we'll be watching those. I, I imagine you'll be putting a report out. So uh, folks, go to uh olivermsa.com, olivermsa.com and uh, you might want to consider subscribing to Michael's letter and you'll get this stuff. He tells us here and he puts out an awful lot of stuff every week. We talk about a couple of the things that he's uh, been talking about during the week, but you really do very, very well to subscribe to olivermsa.com. Thank you very much, Michael, for being with me once again. Always a pleasure talking to you, always insightful. Uh, Thank and that's you, why we like to have you. Thank you so much. Well, folks, we I do have to it. go to a break now, uh, but we're going to be back with will- William Engdahl. Uh, F. William Engdahl will he- be here to talk to us about geopolitics, the petrodollar, and gold. Should be a fascinating subject in, in light of what's going on uh, around the world right now. So don't go away. We'll be right back with William Engdahl. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times Into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again William Angdahl. He is an award-winning geopolitical analyst, strategic risk consultant, author, professor, and lecturer. Uh, He's been on this show before. He, uh, He did his undergraduate work at Princeton University. He uh, he also has uh, advanced degrees in comparative economics at Stockholm University, uh, and uh, he's written some books. Uh, I've, I've read a couple of them. Uh, one I've read most recently uh, is The Gods of Money, and uh, I think if you want to know, really know, why politics in the United States and around the world, but especially in the United States, are the way they are, The Gods of Money tells the story. It tells you who really runs the show, who's really uh... the powers behind the throne and it does an awful lot to explain why seemingly uh... ridiculous policies are continually put uh... in place uh... and why they seem not to be working well the more they do, the more they think they need to do more of it, even if it doesn't work, whether it's uh, monetary and fiscal policy or whether it's uh, policy, uh, foreign policy with wars and, uh, and all the stuff that we're doing overseas. But in any event, thank you very much, William, for joining me again. It's always good to have you with me. Thank you, Jay. You know, one of the things I really want to talk to you today about, uh, we titled our show uh, Geopolitics, uh, the Petrodollar and Gold. Uh, but there was an article, and I would just really tell people to go to com, William to learn more about William's work. He's a very prolific writer and lots of very thought-provoking articles there, but one that I'd like to start out with talking to you about today is, do we really want a new world war with Russia? And the opening paragraph, and I'd just like to read it here, it says, Washington continues making an international fool of herself by her inability to effectively counter the impression around the world that Russia, spending less than 10% of the Pentagon annually on defense, has managed to do more against ISIS in Syria in six weeks than the mighty U.S. Air Force bombing campaign has done in almost a year and a half. One aspect that bears attention is the demonstration by the Russian military of new technologies that belie the widely held Western notion that Russia is little more than a backward oil and raw material commodity exporter wow that's end end of quote to me that is that that is something that's so diametrically opposed William to what we would hear in our mainstream media where we are here always told that you know uh, that annoyance of russia getting involved in syria what are they doing there so you know living in the so it, it, the, here we don't hear that kind of thing right but you are saying in fact that that uh, Russia has been far more successful in, 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 um, in really setting back ISIS than the U.S. has been. Can you provide some evidence of, that that is true? Help us understand it, because we're certainly not hearing that here.
5: The, uh, the campaign that Putin began, and he, every step of the way, he has invited the Obama administration, Washington, to partner with him. They've mm-hmm. refused time and time again. Although now, just in the G20 meeting yesterday in in, uh, Antalya, in Turkey, it seems that Obama and Putin actually sat down for a 35-minute face-to-face, which is uh, a very potentially positive step, Mm -hmm. let's hope. Uh, What Russia is doing in Syria since the 30th of September is com- diametrically opposed to what the Pentagon has been doing for a year and a half as i mentioned in the in, in the uh, statement you just quoted they were invited they were pleaded to by the legitimate government of Syria and elections to my mind are important and not just the wishes of foreign governments to have this or that person in instead of the person who's there Mm -hmm. But the legitimate government of Syria, Bashar al-Assad and his cabinet, asked the Russians to come in and help them defeat the terrorists. Mm -hmm. And initially, Washington said, well, Russia is attacking the moderate opposition. (laughs) And yet, a, a general, a U.S. general testified to Congress a week before that statement that After a half a billion dollars of expenditure by by the Pentagon on training moderate uh, Islamists to fight the Bashar al Assad government or to fight whoever, uh, only four or five are still with us. Mm, Wow. And we, we don't know where they are because we don't track them. So, what factions of the Pentagon? I think there's a faction fight inside the American uh, body politic, there's a deep mm-hmm. faction fight, one faction is aligned with people like General Petraeus, General John Allen, uh, various others, and that's kind of a deep state, a dark state uh, network within uh, within the Pentagon and within the uh, American body politic that wants destruction, they want war everywhere and they want to spread ISIS as a vehicle of that. Well, there are other factions, fortunately, for the world and for the United States that are resisting that. The the latest information I have is that uh, President Obama, in his talks with Putin yesterday in in Turkey, actually uh, began to realize that maybe a cooperation with what Russia is doing against uh, Islamic terrorism in Syria might not be the worst option
2: mm-hmm.
5: uh, let's see, let's wait and see uh, it's, it's we can hope yeah we can hope we can because hope. The, the other option is World War 3 and there are definitely factions such as those who uh, created people like uh, General Petraeus and, and General John Allen those factions want to create war and destruction all over the planet, to create a World War III. I personally don't think that's the best way for humankind to proceed.
2: <laughs> yeah, what a novel idea, huh? I mean, as yes. you, you watch the Republican candidates, I mean, with the exception possibly of Rand Paul, they're all tripping over each other, trying to be more uh, more tough than anybody else, blaming Obama for all the world's prob- problems, of course, and uh, would, would certainly... Well, that's election politics. Yeah. Although
5: I have to say, even though I'm, I'm not a great fan of him, one thing that Donald Trump has done is to say, well, if the Russians are getting after ISIS in Syria, let them do it. That's great. Yeah, and Yeah. he did say that. He, the, the establishment does not like to hear that because they are behind the military-industrial complex. I call them the establishment. The American oligarchs, the David Rockefellers, the Bill Gates, the, the Warren Buffetts, the George Soros. They do not like to hear that because their agenda is war everywhere to extend their power. And that, to my mind, is a pathological agenda. It's a, it's a sick agenda. We, we, we need to move beyond that crap. Well, Excuse I'm- me.
2: Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know why anybody would disagree with that. I, I don't know where the the rationale is for that, I, unless they think that we can prevail. Our weapons are so much superior to Russia's that we can, or to China's or anyone else's that we can just prevail and uh, and own the whole earth ourselves without uh, anybody else, uh, without any national sovereignty at all. It seems to be that's where we're going. That's where these guys want to go. Right? Is, is to take care of, to take away the national sovereignty of governments everywhere? Isn't that the agenda exactly. of these guys?
5: Yeah, 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 definitely. And uh, so One, one thing I, I should add to that is the idea that the U.S. military is the most potent military force on the face of the earth, no disrespect for patriotic American soldiers who are simply used by the oligarchs of the United States as cannon mm. fodder in their wars. Sure, sure. But the technologies that the U.S. military uses are... Ain't that great? To put it bluntly, the, well, that's,
2: uh, that, that's, that's what I want to ask you about because you mentioned in that article that there that the Russians have come up with some pretty pretty darn good technology. You mentioned the Russians are spending ten percent of what we do, the Pentagon does, yeah. and they've been more effective, and and probably because there's some resolve there to defeat ISIS. It seems to me they're they're more they're more certainly. Um, you know, there's resolution to do it on Russia's part, whereas, as you say, part of us, uh, part of our body politic and our military seems to want to use ISIS to create more chaos because uh, sometimes we're supporting ISIS, other times we're fighting them, and and depending on which boundary they're at or where they're at at a given time.
5: Yeah, Uh, that's pretty much the way I see it. And let me give an example in terms of, of technology. The India is more or less a developing country and has huge poverty, it has huge uh, uh, problems but the Indian Air Force, India also has a very very uh, sophisticated high technology computer and and, uh, uh, aircraft manufacturing sector and so forth but they buy their jets not from the United States for the most part But they buy them from the Soviet Union. Mm. They buy jets similar to the ones that are flying in uh, Syria and doing such precision damage over the last six weeks. And there was an exercise earlier this year held in the UK where the Indian Air Force pilots flew Soviet, or not Soviet, Russian uh, jets, SU 30s. Against the Royal Air Force Eurofighter Typhoon jets, and the Royal Air Force used their top pilots. The Indians deliberately did not send their best pilots; they send ordinary pilots. The Royal Air Force of UK used their top fighter jet, the Typhoon, superior to any current U.S. fighter plane, even uh, possibly accepting the latest version of the F-15 or F-22. The Indians didn't send their best fighter planes, which would be the super Sukhois, a modified version of the Su-30. And the Indians simply wiped the Royal Air Force clean. Wow. Hmm. They just, uh, 12 to 0. Interesting. They, bl- wow. they blanked, the, and these were war exercises. Mm-hmm. And they did the same against the U.S. and India uh, one or two years ago. So then we have things like the F-35. Well, the, the director of the F-35 program uh, was just removed of her responsibility. It's a $400 billion so far that's designed to go to one point. I think $1.3 trillion Oof. over the next 20 years.
2: Good Lord. And,
5: it's less capable than the existing F 16 fighter jet that uh, America has. Mm-hmm. So, this all purpose, all service fighter, bomber, whatever you want to call it, is a, is a piece of crap.
2: It's a well, piece somebody's of crap. making money. Somebody's, somebody's well, that's getting the point. Uh, that's, that's the, the point. Right?
5: The, that's a military industrial, industrial complex. complex. And the Pentagon have become so
2: corrupt. Yeah. Well, that's what so, Eisenhower. That's what Eisenhower warned us about uh, when he exactly, left office. And exactly. Now, I want to ask you. Uh, I want to ask you about. Uh, you know, the issue in the Ukraine, which seemed to really sort of fire Russia up, I guess. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, most Americans don't really know the story here. All we know, we, we're told that Russia is doing all kinds of evil things to the Ukraine. They, uh, they invaded. They took part of their country away from them. Uh, and we're never told the other part of it, that the United States uh, played a role in the overthrow of an elected government there. Uh, talk to our listeners about that a little bit, because most people think that it's you know it's just a one sided affair that uh, oh not Russia, at all
5: not at all. Ta- tell us about nope. that because it, yes, uh, I will gladly no less than George Friedman, the the head of Stratfor, which is a consultancy on geopolitical uh, developments for the CIA, for the Pentagon, for the Israelis, and so forth. George Friedman, who knows quite a bit about international politics. Gave an interview last December where he said, "The U.S. coup d'état in Ukraine in February 2014 was the most blatant coup d'état in U.S. history." Victoria Nuland, the Assistant Secretary of the State Department, uh, the CIA, John Brennan's uh, knuckle draggers, the uh, you know, and the reason was. To drive a wedge between Western Europe and Russia that was becoming economically mutually beneficial for both in a huge way, and to simply isolate both and uh, it they what they did was bring and this can be checked by any intelligent uh, listener who goes into Google and Uh, Google's neo-Nazi Ukraine or uh, right-wing Ukraine, uh, and so forth. The government was put in there by the U.S. State Department, by Joe Biden, by John McCain. It was a truly nonpartisan effort to create this fascist coup d'etat in Ukraine. And immediately the Ukrainian government began uh, proposing legislation or passing legislation in in their rigged parliament to deny the Russian-speaking and ethnic Russian uh, population in eastern Ukraine the right to speak Russian. You cannot yeah. speak Russian. It's illegal. Oh, well, my goodness. Yeah. And then they began doing other things that made it clear that this, this was a, a fascist coup d'etat. And they began resisting Crimea, which historically is Russian going back centuries And Crimea, Russia had an agreement going into the next 20 years with the government of Kiev before this coup d'etat for the Russian Black Sea naval fleet to be based in Crimea. So they had many Russian military in Crimea, peninsula there. And Crimea only was given to Ukraine for administrative reasons by Khrushchev, in 1954 but that was when the Soviet Union was won it was like Texas and Arkansas sure And American president gives uh, you know a little part of Arkansas to be administered by the state of Texas and uh, it doesn't have any effect on America as America well that was the Soviet Union it was one uh, you could argue that it was a bad one but uh, it was mm-hmm. and then uh, historically Crimea was always part of Russia, but militarily, for the U.S. to install, uh, Russia was completely shocked by the coup d'etat of, of Victoria Nuland and uh, the neocons in, in Kiev.
2: And they had to yeah. react
5: because their, their military survival depended on keeping that base in, in Crimea. So they, what they did was supported the idea that the Crimean population decide in a referendum do we want to be part of Crimea, or do we want to be part of uh, Ukraine, or do we want to be part of Russia. They decided 93% to go with Russia. And there's no dispute about that in, in the international uh, community. They just claimed that was because Russians put a, a, a rifle to the head of the voters. yeah. Well, I've, yeah. I've talked to people who uh, lived in Crimea during that time. They said what the Russians did was prevent the Kiev government from sending a military invasion into Crimea Uh and uh, allow a free vote. They did not influence anybody.
2: Well, of course, uh, uh, William. There couldn't be any reason why anybody would ever want any kind of government out of the United States government, right? So, so we uh, listen. I want to ask you uh, also. You wrote an article recently about a seemingly warming relationship between Russia and Saudi Arabia, and you also talked about uh, this about the United States losing the Middle East. Now, it seems to me, if certainly, I mean, even mainstream people are acknowledging that uh, that american influence has waned in the middle east now but that certainly would have to be a very important aspect with respect to the petrodollar is it, or is what we're really fighting over here in, in large part the petrodollar and the ability to create money out of nothing to use it to gobble up the world's resources and to use our military to expand and push and take away the sovereignty of nations is that what this is what this war in the middle east is about to assert to a great extent
5: Uh, Well, the war in the Middle East and the whole project of of, uh, a faction in Washington called the Arab Spring, Uh, it goes back to George W. Bush and the invasion of Iraq in 2003 when Mm -hmm. they proposed something called the greater Middle East. Right. Their agenda at that time was to to create uh, destabilizations through these color revolutions, as they're called. Uh, in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Libya, that wasn't very colorful, that was blood red, but, uh, uh, and now Syria, to install Muslim Brotherhood puppet regimes in all these countries that would answer to Washington. And that backfired massively on this faction around, actually around Hillary Clinton and uh, Certain people in the Pentagon and the CIA—the idea that you can at will play around with with uh, people like like some people in Washington believe and upset traditions that go back. Syria is a is a nation that has had several hundred years of tradition of harmony or relative harmony between different religions that kind of has been a model for the Middle East of uh, Orthodox Christian of Sunni Muslim of Shia Muslim Mm -hmm. which is the Muslim in Iran but uh, not only and of Alawite which is a spin-off of the Shia friendly to the Shia but not quite Shia and then Qatar and Washington and the French and various people decide because Bashar al-Assad refused a gas pipeline from Qatar into Europe through Syria, that Assad had to go. So, uh, yeah, that's...
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it seems to me that when Kissinger set up the petrodollar to replace the real gold dollar... You that know. there had to be a bid that that allowed then a bid for the dollar that otherwise wouldn't have been there a big one you know and then saudi arabia <laughs> and then all the other oil producing most of the other oil producing countries went along with it so that all produced of all, and, of all of them all of them and so the whole world was and so now if that order is coming apart if the ability of the United States to control the, uh, the, the oil markets and, and hence demand that, P, that other countries use the dollar to purchase oil, then the, uh, the hegemony of the, the dollar may be, uh, may be in trouble. And it would seem to me that that's, that's what the, a lot of these battles could be about. Uh, we, we just don't have much time here left, uh, William. So I, I maybe agree you with you.
5: I would say it's not the hegemony of the United States. It's the hegemony of Wall Street and the oligarchs behind wall street yes this, right? and they are going crazy. they're losing power everywhere and that's the good news
2: well I was reading uh i it might create a lot of chaos though when thing when they when Humpty Dumpty falls off the wall but uh but but i uh, just with uh, very quickly here um an article i read this morning from another publication uh, grandmaster putin's trap it's called talking about how putin has been accumulating huge amounts of gold and basically he's selling his oil to to china and I noticed also that uh, Iraq, which seems to be aligned now with Russia to a great extent, also increasing their oil sales to China, well, they're not trading uh, that oil for dollars. And in fact, Putin is, is uh, requiring gold for it. And there was this view uh, in, the, uh, in this article that, uh, that ultimately Europe is going to need at least some of Russia's oil in order to survive and that Putin is really sort of circling the wagon in a sense in a very clever way. <laughs> And uh, and and that uh, the West just doesn't just doesn't know what's going on. Thirty seconds to comment on that, if you would, please. Russia is
5: the biggest supplier today of oil to Western Europe, and the biggest supplier of natural gas. And for the United States to put pressure on Brussels and put pressure on on the European Union and especially Germany to break those ties through sanctions is the most suicidal move that. The Europeans have made in a long time.
2: All right, that's that's very interesting. John Kerry's remarks recently that if we don't sign the the uh, nuclear agreement, that we could lose the uh, the world's reserve currency was really a shocker. You think he might have uh, been onto something there? Of course, of course. Yeah. Because okay, well, we're, we're, unfortunately, we're out of time, William. Okay. I'm very sorry about that. want to get you back again because you're just a wealth of knowledge on geopolitics, views that we don't hear of on a regular basis. So thank you very much. Well, folks, that is all the time we have. Next week, I'm going to have Chris Martinson with me uh, as well as his colleague, Adam Taggart. Uh, that is uh, peakprosperity.com. We're going to talk about a book called How to Prepare the Future and Create a World Worth Inheriting. Uh, So I'm sure you'll want to be back uh, and listen to us next week. So thanks very much, and uh, until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you.
1: Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel.
0: Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold.